Christmas is among us, whether we like it or not, whether you're ready for it or not, it is here. And uh, for many, uh, this is a joyful occasion as many share wonderful memories and things in their life of growing up, but others, uh, this oftentimes is a season in which sometimes it's not filled with great memories. I read something not too long back that 45% of all Americans dread the Christmas season. And I think sometimes I find that even true. You're like, oh, I'll just be glad when this month is over. And again, we're not, we're not dreading the incarnation, the birth of Christ. It isn't that that we struggle with. I think what we struggle with is all the things that crowd us in this time of year. Sometimes there's financial pressure. Sometimes there's family pressure. Sometimes getting together with family and all those things that seem to uh, push against us. We're just ready to get beyond and get into the next year. And uh, sometimes the Christmas season this month uh, and such an emphasis on family and get together, it really, is, really can be a negative reminder, a negative reminder about, again, uh, loved ones, Lord, that, that have uh, gone and left us this year. And I think of uh, Dez and Betty with their uh, daughter-in-law, Kyle Marie, and others, and Don, and certainly others that are experiencing that grief and will experience this first Christmas with that loss, a painful divorce, uh, family separation, whatever it is, uh, people often find themselves approaching and coming into the month of December, Christmas, with a sense of dread, with not the joy of the season. And this morning, we... What we do when we gather together in this time of celebration on Sunday morning is it's a time for us to spiritually reset ourselves, to calibrate ourselves around what is true, uh, what it is that as Christians that is vital and important for our life, and why as believers we have hope in Christ. Uh, some of you may have uh, heard the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was in the Auschwitz prison camp of the Nazis in World War II. And Viktor Frankl was a psychiatrist, and he was interested in uh, what it was that enabled uh, some people to survive the rigors of the concentration camp. Why were some able to navigate and survive and uh, the cruelty while others didn't? And he wrote in a book called Man's Search for Meaning, he wrote this, and listen to what he says about the power of hope. Viktor Frankl writes, The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. One of my favorite movies... Shawshank Redemption, I remember the line Morgan Freeman read, told Andy, who was there under false imprisonment, told him when he got to prison for life under a false uh, uh, accusation of murder, and read, Morgan Freeman told him, hope is a dangerous thing for a prisoner. And what was he meaning by that? Meaning, you're here, buddy, for the rest of your life. Hope is dangerous because it will drive you crazy in thinking that there's any hope beyond these walls. Well, for the believer, hope is not a dangerous thing, right? 
Hope gives us the future and gives us perspective. And I'm not talking about just some, some little uh, jump shot of, uh, of optimism and kind of a, a phony uh, kind of facade. Uh, watch a few Hallmark movies, you know, we need to see uh, what woman is selling the inn this year and her estranged boyfriend in New York and she meets the, the bartender and uh, well they, you know, I mean it's the same thing, right? You know it's true. That doesn't quite going to do it, right? So uh, hotel and whatever it is, it's all mumbo jumbo. Uh, but I believe that for the believer, everlasting hope is only found in Jesus Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, 700 years before the birth of Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah declared, For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And this morning I want us to look in the title of this message, The Hope of Christmas. You have a listener's guide in your bulletin. Most of the scriptures that we'll use are in that guide to help you perhaps get a little more out of the message, to Uh, learn a little bit more of the the Word of God, being more engaged. And this morning, as we look at the hope of Christmas, I want us to look at four qualities that are mentioned. You know, as a pastor, Christmas is always a challenge to preach messages in December. Because guess what? Uh, I preached Isaiah 9-6 several times. Now, it's different this morning, but it's hard to keep going back to many of the same narratives and thinking, well, how can I say this differently? What is different that I can say? It isn't like it's updated and changed the story of the Christmas, right? And so, but yet, as I find, as I get into that, I find that there's always something fresh. You never exhaust the Word of God. There's always new insight. There's always not new insight in the sense of what God said, but, but new ways that, that the truth is revealed and how we can apply that. And so this morning, I want us to look at these four qualities that Isaiah mentions here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Number one, quality one, is that Jesus, as my counselor, reveals God's love for me. Jesus, as my counselor, try to make these applicable, reveals God's love for me. Again, Isaiah 9, 6. <clears throat> for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government will be on his shoulders, and I'm glad the government is on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, if you have a King James uh, or a new King James, and I think even the New American Standard, they separate the two Wonderful Counselor as two separate terms. Wonderful, comma, Counselor is a separate name. But most most, uh, scholars believe that that's a single title, Wonderful Counselor. Counselor, all right? I'm not going to quibble of it. Don't go out and start a new church over it. It's just an observation, all right? And uh, wonderful counselor, that Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He is a, the wonder, the wonder of what God has done, that God, by a supernatural act, has impacted our world, impacted our existence. No greater supernatural act of God uh, than when he sent his only son to uh, 2,000 years ago to be born as a human being, 
uh, to live a perfect life so he could die a perfect death to redeem and pay the ransom for our sins. The greatest act of love ever demonstrated. And I think what happens when we get into the, the Christmas uh, blues is we have lost that sense of wonder over such a profound truth. It just becomes ho-hum. Amazing grace isn't really amazing anymore. we just kind of used to it. And what happens is when we have to come back year after year, time after time, even every Lord's Day, we're constantly recalibrating our minds and our hearts around the profound wonder of Christ. It says that, uh, you know, we'd sing that song, Jesus, what a wonder you are. What a wonder you are. But also it says, wonderful counselor. All, again, whether you take that together or separate, but together. Wonderful counselor. This wonderful hope of Christ that Jesus came, that God sent, was characterized by supernatural wisdom and truth and knowledge. You remember when Jesus was teaching, and one of the characteristics that was noted, Luke 4.32 is an example of several The Bible says that those who heard him teaching the word noted that he possessed authority. That he wasn't like just the other rabbis that were teaching who based their authority by quoting other rabbis. Jesus didn't have to authenticate his teaching from anybody. His authority, Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. And so they noted his authority. Isaiah, a little later from the chapter 9 passage in Isaiah 11, <coughs> speaks prophetically about the coming Messiah, Jesus again. Isaiah 11, verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. That means he is going to be a great descendant of David. David's father, earthly father, was Jesse. So this... Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Verse 2. Notice the wisdom. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Let me ask you this morning, do any of you need the wisdom of God about anything this morning? James says, if you need wisdom, James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. He is the wonderful counselor and dude with great wisdom and knowledge. Second quality I would point out from Isaiah 9-6 is, secondly, is that Jesus is the mighty God, as the mighty God, is in control of all things. The Bible says that He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. One of the most comforting attributes of God is the attribute of God's sovereignty. God's absolute sovereignty Over all things. That means the good, the bad, the ugly, the things that 
happen to me, through me, against me, all those things that ultimately, as R.C. Sproul so famously said, there's not a renegade Adam, A-T-O-M, running loose in the universe that God doesn't have control over. Because if there is, by very nature, then he can't be God if he's not in absolute control. Now, don't misunderstand me. There's a difference between what some theologians try to explain, and again, it's, it's, it's a little tricky, but they try to explain about the permissive will of God versus that God caused evil. God cannot cause evil. James tells us that God cannot be tempted by evil and cannot use evil to cause anything, but God is not held hostage by man's evil either. I'll say that again. God is not held hostage because of man's rebellion and evil. We see that all through the Scripture. Because God, even to my, my, my friend Joseph, who I seem to be quoting every Sunday, what man meant for evil, God intended for good. God is bigger than the bad. God allowed Joseph's suffering. God allowed his son, Jesus, to suffer, to die. But the truth is, if you walked with Christ for any length of time, there's a hard reality, a hard truth that you have to submit to and come to the realization that there can be no transformation without tribulation. I don't like it, and you don't either. Don't look that spiritual at me. But there cannot be any transformation without tribulation. It's often through my pain, my suffering, my hardship, that God meets me in the most dynamic and greatest of ways. That, frankly, when I'm just kind of lottie-dolling through life, everything's good, God every once in a while will allow the suffering that is a result of fallen nature of sin to come in my life, whether it's through sickness, whether it's through people or situations or whatever it is, to arrest my attention that guess what? I'm not in control, but God is. And I'm thankful for God's sovereignty. He is the mighty God. And you see, we think because we say that, that that just solves everything. No, it makes sometimes things more complicated. But as I've said in the past and said in different situations, Jesus himself on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But yet, even though he cried out in that darkest hour of the Father separating in that sense because of Jesus' bearing of our sin at the cross, yet Jesus trusted his Father completely. You see, we want to trust as long as we got the agenda and we know where it's going. That didn't work that way. Jesus calls us to trust Him, and He'll fill in the blanks because He's in control. James 1, from the message paraphrase, sometimes it's helpful, reads, Consider it a sheer gift, friends, when tests and challenges come at you from all sides. That sounds crazy, doesn't it? But he says in verse 3, you know that under pressure, your faith life is forced into the open and shows its true colors. 
That's what it means by tested. When you test somebody, you reveal what they know or they don't know. When you test a structure of a bridge when it's just built, you test whether the integrity of that steel is going to hold up two, three, four, five times the amount of weight it was built for. You reveal the weaknesses. So when challenges and suffering and hardship come into my life, it shows my true colors. What's, what am I really clinging and holding on to? Verse 4. So don't try to get out of anything prematurely. Let it do its work so you become mature, grown up, and well-developed, not deficient in any way. The apostle Peter understood suffering. And he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6-7, through 7, he said, there's wonderful joy ahead. Now, that sounds great, but when you realize who he's writing to, he's writing to Christians that were experiencing the persecution of the demonic, crazed emperor Nero, who was sadistic, cruel, and evil. And Peter was telling them to have the audacity to have hope. He says, so be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. Verse 7. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire, tests and purifies gold. As fire tests and purifies gold. Though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. Look at this. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, not some, not a little, I would circle that word many, many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Don't forget, and I say this to myself first, as a reminder that God often accomplishes His purposes through my problems. I don't like it. I'd rather Him do that through your problems, not mine. I can learn from you. Doesn't work that way, does it? God is in control. And the wonderful truth, when you understand the sovereignty of God, is the fact that God isn't just Lord overall, not just kind of in this, this mysterious control, but He's actually holding all things together. Literally, all things together. I thought about, kind of had to go back to my science class. I've got a picture of the atom structure on the screen. We'll have a little science class. I should have worn my white coat here. But I want you to think with me. An atom is the smallest unit of matter that retains all of the chemical properties of an element, of matter. The atom is made up of subatomic particles called protons, neutrons, and electrons. Okay, You see the protons and the neutrons uh, compose that nucleus, and then the electrons are out there kind of floating around, spinning around. And so the protons, listen to me carefully, I am going somewhere with this. The protons and neutrons form the center, which is called the nucleus of the atom. And the electrons, as I said, are kind of floating around in this, this small cloud-like 
circular around the atom. But what I want you to notice is that the protons, scientists tell us, have a positive charge. The protons, they're part of that nucleus. And the neutrons have no charge. They're neutral. Now, physicists have discovered, people much smarter than me, that two positive charges put together, they won't clash together, but they resist each other. Give me an example. Remember when you were a kid and you had two magnets? And you'd flip one on the other opposite end and try to put them together? And you literally could feel this force. You couldn't see it, but you could, you could, you could feel the resistance. That's what should happen in the nucleus of an atom. That's what should happen. But here's the amazing thing, going back to the picture. The protons and the neutrons, they're not resisting each other. What are they doing? They're clinging together. Scientists can't figure out how that be. They shouldn't be doing that. should be resisting each other. shouldn't be forming a, a nucleus together like those magnets. It's scientifically unexplainable. But you know what? Scientists, and that's what, again, everything that, are, that, that is around us is these atoms is what makes up the material world of our existence. Now, what scientists can't explain, it's amazing what Scripture explains in Colossians 1.17, speaking of Christ, that He is before all things, and notice this, in Him all things, what? Hold together. Now, if He can hold together the literal components of matter that enable you to sit and share without it disintegrating, put on clothes, exist in this material world. If he can hold all this together, why do we doubt he can hold my life together? Jesus holds all things together because he is the mighty God. God will take care of you because he can do that. I was thinking about the, the old hymn. I'm not going to sing it to you. Some of you may remember it. Some of you may not. God will take care of you. Be not dismayed, whatever betide. God will take care of you. Beneath His wings of love abide. God will take care of you. Through days of toil, when heart doth fail, God will take care of you. When dangers Fierce your path assail, God will take care of you. No matter what may be the test, God will take care of you. Listen, lean, weary one upon his breast, God will take care of you. God will take care of you. That's all I'm going to say. All right. That's why Peter could say in 1 Peter 5, 17, 5, 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. Notice the third quality. It says, Jesus, as the everlasting Father, keeps his 
promises. Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, and thirdly, Everlasting Father. Now let me just make a little note here. New Testament, we have an understanding of the Trinity, the triune God. Is that saying that Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus? That's a, a concept that's not accurate biblically. And it's not saying that, but what it's speaking of is the characteristic of this Messiah will be fatherly, will be shepherding, will be caring. It's speaking of the character of Messiah, not necessarily the confusion that the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. When my boys were little, I had to be careful about getting out of jams by saying, I promise I will do that. Because kids will not remember to take baths. They will not remember to clean up their rooms. They, will not, they have a memory, but if you use those two words... I don't care how many years, I don't care how much time has gone by. They will have a photographic lock if you say, but dad, you promised. So you had to be careful when you got impatient, when to get out of a jam, right? To say that because you knew it would come back to get you. Well, listen, as an earthly father, I did not want to have my children think that I was somebody that could not be relied upon. I didn't want them to think that I was somebody that said one thing but didn't follow through in my promises. Aren't you thankful that we have a God, that we have a Savior who always keeps His Word and what He said? He always keeps His Word. Look at the Scriptures. Most of all these are not going to be on the screen. They're actually... Uh, written out in your handout for you to follow along easily. Hebrews 1.3, the Amplified Bible says that Jesus, he, referring to Jesus, is the perfect imprint and the very image of God. Okay, Jesus is God of very God. Therefore, Jesus has the same heart for us as the Father. He is the living Word and He always keeps His promises. The Bible also says that God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. You can believe what he says, that he is that refuge and a present help in trouble. The Bible also says that the Lord God is a sun and a shield, and he gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. That's a promise that you can believe. I have those written out so they're easy for you to put them somewhere, to mark them so you see them regularly. And when the Bible says that the righteous man shall flourish like a palm tree, that he will grow like a cedar in Lebanon. When Solomon built the temple, the, the finest timber that was used in the temple came from Lebanon. They were known for their, their trees and the, and the quality of the cedar. That, that, that we would be planted in the house of the Lord, that they will flourish in the courts of our God. That's what it says about a righteous person. When God says, do not fear, for I am with you, do not anxiously look around you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Listen, you can take that to the bank. That he is an everlasting, comforting, tender father. Reference that I thought of that kind of alludes this. It won't be on the screen. It's not in your notes. 
It's in, I think, in uh, Luke 13, around 34, when Jesus looked at Jerusalem and he said, uh, how I wish that I, how I wish that you would allow me to, to hold you or take you as children. But because Israel rejected him as their king, like, uh, like that tender parent, he said, how I wish that you would have allowed me to take you to myself as children. Jesus, as our Messiah, tenderly cares for our people. That's why when you come for prayer, when you ask for prayer, we're not asking for things. Jesus likened an earthly father to his heavenly father. He said no earthly father that when his child asked him for bread gives him a, a snake or asked him for a fish gives him a snake. In other words, earthly fathers may be by their sinfulness and cruelty, but by nature a father, even an unbelieving father, there's something given to them by their creator God that wants to take care of their child, a mother. That's why it's so heinous when you hear about a parent killing their child. I mean, even, even among unbelievers, that's just abhorrent because it goes against the very grain of how we're made. So Jesus uses that and says, how much more does your heavenly Father Know what you have need of. In fact, he says, have what you have, know what you have need of before what? You even ask. Before you even ask. Jesus is our wonderful counselor, mighty God that controls all that's in our life, equal with God the Father as our shepherding, comforting guide. But the last quality I would point out this morning from Isaiah 9, 6 is Jesus is the prince, as the Prince of Peace, that Jesus has made peace between God and me. Says that, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus has made peace. You think, well, why? What's the big deal with that? Because the Bible is clear that we are estranged as human beings. We're estranged from our Creator. There is a barrier. There's a gap. There's a gulf. Whatever it is you want to metaphor you want to use between my unrighteousness and the righteousness of my Creator. There's a gap. And I can't, I can't bridge that gap. Imagine two opposite uh, mountain points and this valley in between. And no matter what I do, I can't bridge that gap. And we try to do that. We try to do it through religion. We try to do it through good works. We try to do it through all different ways that when people say, do you have the assurance of knowing that if you died today that you would go to heaven, they would say, well, I hope my good outweighs my bad. Listen, you, you can't outweigh the good. You can't do that in and of yourself. That's why the necessity of the incarnation is so vital to the Christian faith. That if God had not come Himself to provide not only the rescue, but He Himself became the very payment that He required to pay the penalty for our sin. No amount of sacrifices and good deeds and all the things that we attribute to good moral character would in any way equal the, the debt that had to be paid. You see, the good news is, is that Jesus took our punishment to the cross. 
He took our punishment. He took what we deserved. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it so clearly. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin. Had no sin. To be sin for us. So that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. That means that the wrath of God that we rightly deserve as sinners, Jesus has absorbed and taken that wrath on behalf of those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You see, that's what the Bible talks about by being born again. Once you put your faith in Jesus as your Savior, trusting in His sacrifice as the payment for your sin, you couldn't pay it. But the payment for your sin, you, are, you become reconciled with God. You have peace with God. You see, the reason the world is in such hostility and turmoil is because they don't have peace with God. That's the reason the peace treaties and all the, 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 the pauses and fighting and all those things, they're only temporary. Because the only lasting peace that the Bible tells us about is when the king of peace comes and to rule and to reign, that there will be peace on earth. And while we await the peace on earth, while we await the peace that is yet to come on the earth, we still can have peace with our creator God as our Lord. You see, Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we've been justify, that means made right, through faith, through trust, we have, not we can have, not we hope to have, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people are in lives in such turmoil because they never experience the peace of God in their own lives. One last scripture from Paul, Colossians 1, 19 and 20 for God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him. That tells us that all the fullness of Jesus, that He was God, a very God. Verse 20, And through Him, through Christ, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and here it is, by making peace through His blood, that means through His sacrifice, His death, shed on the cross. I don't know how long it's been. Some of you probably read this book and uh, some of you not. Maybe by mentioning it, you'll be encouraged to, to get a copy of it. But Don Richardson was a missionary who wrote the book called Peace Child. And Don Richardson was a missionary to a tribe called the Sawi, S-A-W-I in Irian Jaya or Irian Jaya in Indonesia. The Sawi were a ruthless people constantly at war with their neighboring villages. And Don Richardson was trying to go there and bring them the gospel. Being that they valued treachery and deceit and murder, Richardson thought there was no hope to win these people to Christ and get them to place their faith in Him, to get them to the place that they would have peace with one another. In fact, uh, they looked at Judas as a hero. 
Because again, in their minds, the one who has the most treacherous and betrayal and, you know, that's kind of their, the hero. That's a rough setting for a preacher. But there's interesting is that anytime, like Paul in Athens in Acts 17, you always look, especially in a context where there's no, you know, especially people that you can't, there's no Bible you can begin with. There's no, ver- they have no, there's no starting place. But there was a custom in the Sawi tribe or in the, this culture that was legendary called the peace child. And here, here's what was the part of their tradition. In the Sawi tribe, the child, this peace child, was the baby that was born in one village and was given to another village in order to keep peace. As long as that child was alive, there would be peace between those two villages. Don Richardson said, hey, I think I can do something with that. And so, as oftentimes missionaries where you're not going with any background, script, none of that. You have to find some starting point. He used that analogy to teach them and show them the reconciling work of Christ. He told them that Jesus Christ was God's peace child to all men. And because Christ lives eternally through Him, there would always be peace between God and those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result... That was the beginning of a great ministry of revival of many coming to faith in Christ by making the connection of Jesus, Prince of Peace, as God's ultimate peace child. This morning, as we looked at Isaiah 9-6, maybe this morning you need Jesus as your wonderful counselor. Maybe you need to be reminded that, that for the believer that there's nothing that in any way Jesus ever has to learn. I even caught myself when I was praying earlier in the pastoral prayer. I was saying, Lord, and Keith Wallace, who's at the hospital in Plant City, and in my brain it's like, Tim, you moron. Like, you think God needs directions? That's what's going on in my brain as I'm praying. Right? You know, Lord, he's at the hospital in Plant City, you know, you, you get on and get off at Alexander and uh, like, really? I need directions? God, God never has to learn anything. You think your life is so complicated and yet we have, the believer has ready access to what Psalms 139 says to the one that made us that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that intimately knows us because he wove us together Psalm 139 says, while we were yet in our mother's womb. Maybe this morning you need to be reminded that Jesus is the mighty God. That he's in control even over all those things that you don't see and don't understand. Maybe it resonated with the fact that as an everlasting father, he is always... There is our shepherding God that loves us, that cares for us, that watches over us 
Maybe this morning you realize that maybe the turmoil in my life, and especially this past year, is I've never reconciled with the peace child. I've never made peace with God. I've tried. Coming to church this morning, that's got to check a box. Not really. It's good. Glad you're here. But there's only one way to be made right with God, and that's to receive His peace child. 